On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about the throne speech that took place today, which is really a guideline, a blueprint for what a government wants to do with its next term of office. Well, that's what the Trudeau Liberals gave today. Uh, what do we make of it? How did they do? What did they lay out as their plans? Well, we'll talk about all of that. Uh, we're also going to chat about Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays or maybe just have a great December. Bob Bertina, MP for Hamilton East Stony Creek, sent out a Christmas greeting, which was simply, have a great December. Really? Really? We can't do Merry Christmas anymore? We'll talk about that one as well. And the Blue Jays, it is free agency time right now. And you want to know something? The folks who run the Blue Jays, not real popular. And some of the players that they're after, getting away. How does this thing all shake down if at the end of this winter the team does not look much, much better, and the team has not spent some real money. Well, we'll talk to our buddy Bubba O'Neill about that one as well. Stay tuned. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Big day today in Ottawa. It was the throne speech, which effectively launches the new government, outlines plans for what the government is going to do, how it's going to do these things, what the priorities are, how it's going to work with the other parties, which... Sometimes doesn't matter at all if you've got a majority, but as you know, minority government got to be a little nicer, perhaps a little more flexible, perhaps a little more willing to listen. Well, want to find out, want to talk about what happened today, what we heard, what the sense is of what this government proposed in the throne speech today. Joining us from Ottawa, I don't think he was sitting in for the throne speech, but he may as well have been, uh, Peter Grafe, political science professor at McMaster University. Peter, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. You, you were not sitting in the gallery today, were you? No, I was sitting on a train. Okay. <laughs> well, close. Um, how, how did they do? Let's start there. How, did, how do you think they did today? Uh, well, I mean, for a government that's starting a, you know, potentially a four-year mandate, uh, there wasn't a lot of really clear promises made in this in terms of what exactly they're going to be moving on. Um, I mean, clearly uh, it signaled that the what they call their you know big tax cut is going to be central to their first year in power. Uh, also, some moves to uh, ban assault rifles or at least military-style rifles uh, uh, figured relatively prominently. Uh, but generally, I think it was uh, an attempt to uh, calm the waters to say you know, we're going to go forward on a bunch of different fronts. Uh, we'll pretend to listen to the other parties uh, to make sure that we can, you know, move through. And I think there was also an attempt to try and show that it's a government that's willing to listen and perhaps respond to some of the unhappiness following that last election. But, you know, in terms of, you know, specifics, it's not a, a government that's really set very bold uh, goals for itself, at least not except in the long term. So, I mean, there's a promise, for instance, to be, you know, carbon uh, net zero in 2050, uh, but again, that's a few years away. Do, do I detect a whiff of cynicism when you say pretend to listen to the other parties? Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I think we really uh, are in a situation where the government feels pretty uh, secure that the other parties don't want to bring down the government in the short term. That, I mean, the bloc signaled as much in their willingness to say they'll support the throne speech. Um, and so it's not like they had to worry about this throne speech not passing. The NDP clearly also has to wait a while to rebuild its finances. Uh, and even when those two parties are ready to go into election, to, to find an issue where they are willing to line up with the Conservatives to bring down the Liberals may also take some work. So if the Liberals want to go three or four years, I think the, the road is open to them. 
Uh, so I think it's more to look uh, and, and make it seem to Canadians that they want to work collaboratively with the other parties. Uh, you know, in some ways that's an asset for them because they know in reality they don't have to do much of that, at least for the next two years. And yet we heard after the election, since the election night, basically, that this government is going to have to strike a more conciliatory tone and this government's going to have to really listen to the other parties. And the the the, the stage that you're laying out says, well, kind of, at least for show, but not really because nobody really wants to take them down. They can kind of do what they want. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the opposition parties that have wanted to make that case more, right? So on the one hand, uh, Jagmeet Singh wanted to take, you know, what wasn't a great result for the NDP and make it seem like they're real movers and shakers in this parliament, although I don't think they really hold a lot of bargaining leverage. And Andrew Scheer obviously also wants to make himself seem important, uh, given the challenges inside his own party. Uh, I mean, I think for the Liberals, there is a sense that uh, Canadians are tired of the style that the Liberals had in their first four years. And so rather than having maybe a more preachy prime minister, they're happy to, you know, have the listening prime minister who's a bit more out of the spotlight. And so, again, I think it's more a branding thing than than an actual content. I mean, there's a number of things they promised to look into because they're promising ideas in this throne speech, which to me sounds like, you know, a way of preparing some ideas for the next election around things, whether it's like dental care, which is nodding to an NDP electorate, or uh, making parental benefits tax-free, which was a conservative promise last time. Again, I think it's more about trying to grow their base in the next election by developing these ideas rather than actually making them something they hope to accomplish in the next four years. Do you believe, though, as you talk about how, you know, they want to be that government that maybe is to, presents itself as more conciliatory, do you believe, though, that politicians really can change their spots? Or are we hearing this now, but your expectation would be that at some point along the way, Prime Minister Trudeau will return to the Prime Minister Trudeau that we've known. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think he's being that right now. <laughs> I mean, in a way, uh, you know, it's a particular kind of show. Our system of government is really based on the idea of conflict, that we get good outcomes because we have a, a government that uh, pursues its interest in a single-minded fashion, and we have opposition parties that go at them ha- hammer and tongs to make them justify everything they're doing and showing problems. So, you know, a conciliatory government is not entirely sure... Uh, to me, what what that would look like, and indeed we saw, you know, coming out of the throne speech, Andrew Scheer coming out and saying it was disappointing, and he's going to move amendments, and he would vote against it, and that's actually what we'd expect from an opposition leader, and and in a way we want that because it allows us to ask the hard questions of the government in terms of what it's proposing today. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are talking about today's throne speech in Ottawa, outlining what the government says it wants to do, what it's going to do, how it's going to do it, all those things that you would hope to get. It's, it's an outline. It's, a, it's a, an early warning system, if you want to look at it that way, to see here, here's what's going to happen. If everything goes according to plan, here's what this government is going to do. Peter Grafe, McMaster political science professor, familiar voice in the station, joins us to talk about this. Uh, and, and Peter, I'm wondering if there was any way, we, we know about the conflicts and the different interests and everything around this country. Is there any way a throne speech by any government in 2019 can address and satisfy all parts of the country? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, it's interesting that this one really doesn't name any parts of the country. And that was part of Andrew Shear's, you know, complaint that the the names of Alberta and Saskatchewan aren't mentioned in it, but in fact the name of no province is, is uh, offered in it. So uh, as much as uh, people ahead of the throne speech were expecting Trudeau to really emphasize national unity, 
uh, he's done that mostly by just talking about you know how uh, Parliament has worked to bring Canadians together, and then making a series of specific uh, specific promises to Canadians. Uh, there's not much mention of, of specific kinds of communities. I mean, there's some about Indigenous communities in there. There's the idea that cities. Uh, might be able to ban handguns uh, or have that right, but otherwise uh, it's really just talking about Canada as a whole. You mentioned a few moments ago that a lot of the things that were said in here are more themes rather than specific proposals. Is that typical in a throne speech, that they are broader sweeping themes as opposed to any specific thing they're going to do? Yeah, I mean, the specifics are really worked out either in legislation or in the budget. And so, you know, part of what a throne speech does, I mean, we see it on the outside as a, you know, a claim of what the government wants to do. And obviously it gives Parliament a chance to uh, intervene on defining the directions for the country. But for the bureaucrats, it's also, it gives them uh, certain tools when they're trying to either get things in the budget or keep them out by saying, well, it's in the throne speech. So clearly the government has a commitment for this. And so, you know, there's a point to developing this or that program. So there's some pretty clear signals in here around uh, you know, questions about cutting uh, cell phone bills by 25% uh, or providing subsidies for uh, electric cars or certain kinds of uh, green home renovations, you know, that clearly are going to get picked up and, and brought into the budget either this year or next as as a, as a bureaucrat, in a sense, say, well, here's what this government, uh, you know, that was elected by Canadians says they want to do. So how are we going to make sure that they deliver on those electoral promises? You've heard as much as I've heard, as much as anyone listening has heard the comment that comes up all the time, oh, politicians lie, they'll say anything to get elected on and on. I mean, we have all heard this. Typically, though, the things that are said in a throne speech, even if they are not specific, do they generally in some form actually become legislation and become law and become and get passed as opposed to some other things that may just get blown away in the wind? Yes. Yeah, I mean, there's been uh, a number of studies recently about, uh, you know, which take uh, platforms that parties run on and then see what percentage of their promises are kept and which one, you know, what percentage aren't. And uh, it might surprise, uh, you know, it surprised me the extent to which there's a very high percentage of promises that are actually uh, at least somewhat fulfilled, uh, that they they do become uh, the points at which governments uh, act. Uh, I mean, clearly, it's the big uh, promises that aren't uh, that aren't kept that really stay in our mind more. So, uh, again, I mean, this previous uh, Trudeau government uh, kept a very high percentage of its promises, although we maybe remember specific ones that weren't kept around electoral form or, or, or others. So the throne speech does give a pretty good sense of, of what the government is running on. In a way, it's preparing us uh, so that we, we see the theme of the government and when specific things are mentioned in the budget this coming year, we kind of see it as part of the narrative of what this government's about. Clearly, this uh, there were a lot of different again themes that were mentioned here. But when you look at the numbers, uh, the Liberals, everyone knows, has a minority, and the one party that could put them in a position to pass anything is if they connect with the NDP. The two of them combining gives them enough votes to pass something. It sounded like a lot of the things that were in this throne speech was speaking to the NDP, if more than any other party. You agree with that? I mean, a lot of small things, and, and maybe the one big thing of saying that they hope to move forward with pharmacare. But if you actually look at sums of money, I mean, this promised tax cut, which is quite similar to what the Conservatives also promised in, in their platform, is, you know, you're looking at about $6 billion a year when fully implemented. Uh, so in some ways, on, on some of those questions, they're probably closer to the Conservatives. But at, at the current moment, what they're really, I think, looking for, and the party that's come forward and said they're going to support the, the government on their throne speech and presumably through the budget has been the Bloc Québécois. And then probably there, you know, when looking at the aspects around uh, 
banning military-style uh, rifles and giving the opportunity for cities to bring in handgun bans. Uh, those are probably promises that play well in terms of what the bloc would like to see uh, out of the Liberal government. We only have a few seconds left here, but is that risky for the for the Liberal Party? I mean, any national party now runs some risk of getting too closely aligned with a separatist or with a bloc party, do they not? Yeah, I mean, you would think, although, I mean, Canadians... Uh, it's a long way back to 1995 now. <laughs> That's right? true. So, uh, and, and, you know, it's not like the Quebec uh, government is saying we want to separate. So in some ways, uh, maybe, you know, the West is closer to separation or is more rattling that drum. Um, yeah, I think in the long run, it could be hard for a government that relied on the support of the bloc. But to the extent there's no formal kind of coalition, uh, I think it's more a matter of, you know, the bloc deciding they have to support it. I mean, in a similar way, Stephen Harper, for a while, when he was prime minister, relied on the bloc to keep his government in place. And I don't think Canadians, for the most part, were even really that aware of it. Peter Grafe, always appreciate you taking some time today. Thanks for doing this. You're welcome. That, uh, again, you can go read lots of stuff about the throne speech. Gives you an outline. And that's really all it is. It's a coloring book with just the lines of the picture, but they haven't colored in all the pictures yet. And we'll see if they ever do. Peter says that more often than not, to some degree or another, promises are largely being kept. We'll see. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Hamilton East Stony Creek MP Bob Bertina sent out his letter to his constituents this week online saying, wishing you a great month of December. Not wishing you a Merry Christmas, wishing you a great month of December. I mean, a, a little odd. Not going to lie, a little odd. Don't know that anyone has ever put up a December tree. Don't know that anyone has ever eaten December pudding or sung December carols or opened up their December gifts. I don't know what the fear is of saying Christmas. I mean, I know he represents all people and not everyone celebrates Christmas. I got it. I, I mean, I understand that part. But, I mean, even happy holidays? Merry December. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, a great month of December. He didn't say Merry December. That really would have been ludicrous. But anyway, I want to know from you if you if it bothers you when people are apparently unwilling or skittish or I don't even know about saying Christmas. Merry Christmas. Here, here's the funny thing about this. And by the way, the number is 905-645-3221, star 9900. Here's the thing about this that always puzzles me. I understand that we live in a pluralistic society. I understand that not everyone celebrates Christmas. I understand not everyone's Christian. I understand not everyone comes from a Catholic or Christian or whatever background. I have never in my life wished someone Merry Christmas who may not have been Christian and had them respond in any way but thank you. Because when you say Merry Christmas, you're saying it as a pleasant, warm, genuine greeting to the person. You're not doing it through grinding teeth. Merry Christmas, you jerk. No, I mean, no one ever, you're not saying it as an insult. You're giving someone a genuine greeting, whether they are Muslim or Jewish or Hindu or whatever. And I've never, I've never had someone of a different religion be offended. By the same token, if someone wishes me a happy Eid 
or Happy Hanukkah or something, and I'm not Muslim, I'm not Jewish, I'm not offended by that. I'm not bent out of shape. I take it for what it is. I take it as a genuine, warm pleasantry from them. It's a kind-hearted gesture. Who could be upset by that, even if you don't belong to that religious group or subscribe to that religion, to that belief system? I, I, I've, I've never understood. I've never understood the, the anger, the skittishness, the whatever it is around some people not wanting to say Merry Christmas in Canada, where the tradition is Christmas. Again, I understand not everybody celebrates Christmas, but the tradition in this country has been Christmas. And so if you choose to say happy holidays, okay. But if you say Merry Christmas, come on, really? Someone's going to be upset by this? But I want to know if you are okay when someone doesn't say Merry Christmas or when someone says happy holidays instead of Christmas. Are you one of those who who feels like we should be saying Merry Christmas this time of year? Or are you okay? Are you happy with some other version? To that end, are you okay? Do you think, have a great month of December is is the appropriate greeting in 2019? This, this one seems to me to be trying really hard to, I don't know, to do what? I've never, I, in all my life, I've never heard someone wish you a joyous December. <laughs> it's just, who... I, I, if somebody could go to a Hallmark store right now and find me a happy December card, <laughs> I will, I will pay you to buy it and bring it to the studio, send it to the studio. If you think you could find a happy December card, other than the one Bob Bertina sent out. I think he may have, you know, the Hallmark people may be really excited about this. He may have stumbled onto a whole new line of cards that they could now create that could be sold. Happy December, everybody. Merry December. Joyous December. Feliz Navi December. We could go on and on. But I want to know if this, are, are you, there are people who say there's a war on Christmas. I don't know. I think, I think in some places, in some ways, some people do have a war on Christmas. I don't think it's all that widespread. I think some people are preemptively offended for someone else. What I mean by that is I don't really believe that too many people legitimately are offended by the idea of Christmas or by Merry Christmas, but I think, oh, well, but not everyone is like me. And so I better be offended for them before they're offended to prevent them from being offended and then tell someone that it's offensive to stop them, even though I've never asked those people if they truly are offended by this. That's, that's how our offense system seems to work a lot of the time. I expect somebody's going to be offended. So to show how sensitive I am, I am going to be offended before they're offended to make sure that the thing that would offend them is not allowed to offend them. We'll get rid of it. Honestly, has anyone ever said a greeting to you, a warm, genuine greeting to you regardless of religion, regardless of background that you have been really offended by? If your neighbor is Jewish and says, happy Hanukkah, and you're not Jewish, have you ever been offended by that? Really? No, you haven't. I'm sure you haven't. 
If your neighbor is Muslim and, and greets you for Eid, have you ever been offended by that? No, of course you haven't. I want to know what you think, though. 905-645-3221, star 9900. Should we just be able to say Merry Christmas and not worry about it? Or is have a great month of December the new thing that we should stick with? 905-645-3221, star 9900. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Sometimes, often, you will receive a Christmas card. That's what we do often in this country. Sometimes you'll get a holiday card, a happy holidays greeting. This year, from Bob Bertina MP, you get a December greeting. His, his card, his greeting to his constituents says, wishing you a great month of December. I got to give him credit. This is a first. I haven't heard of wishing people a joyous December before this, but that's what we're doing. I want you, I want you to tell me, is that okay? Or you know what? Are we trying too hard at this point? Are we just trying too hard to not say what we know the tradition says this season is? 905-645-3221, star 9900. Dan joins me first today. Dan, how are you tonight? I'm doing well. Thank you very much. Just dropped the boy off at hockey practice, having a great evening. Excellent. I'm on the ice. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. What do you think about this? Are you okay with joyous December or do you say, hey, come on? Everything's fine. You know, I, I just had a family move in next door, Muslim family. I made my way, uh, went out of the way to, to learn some fundamental Arabic greetings, and it's been a great relationship. We've been together for a couple of years, cutting each other's lawn, shoveling the snow. The one daughter, uh, had a, their daughter had a baby, learned congratulations in Arabic to, to say to the, la- the daughter, and it, it's been a great, great ride. And so if I they think, wished you a joyous Eid, would you oh, be offended by that? I, no offense at all. No. And I, I, and I would give it right back, you know, and the happy holidays, and... It, it it's people are just taking so many things out of context. You just got to roll with the punches. Dan, I thank you. Enjoy the practice. Thank you. Take care. Bye now. Uh, let me go to Steve. Steve, how are you tonight? I'm good, thanks. Excellent. What do you think about this? I was telling your call taker that uh, I think it's a matter of I think what we face is the professionally offended or perhaps the tactically offended. People will take offense as a means to uh, gain advantage over the others. Now, I, here's the thing. So let me jump in for a sec, Steve. I don't believe that Bob Bertina is taking offense to Christmas. I don't believe that. And I don't even know that Bob Bertina is trying to dodge it. I just think somehow the obvious thing here is Merry Christmas. The secondarily obvious thing might be Happy Holidays, if you want. I don't even know how we get to have a great month of December. Yeah, I, it's, an, it's an it's interesting approach that Bob took. You can see his point that yeah, if you can't wish people Merry Christmas, then we'll just do the go the minimum and wish them a happy December. <laughs> I guess that's what's on my mind. Steve, I thank you for the call. Appreciate it. Uh, let me go to uh, David here. David, how are you tonight? I'm doing good. I'm good. What do you think about this? Cool or not cool? Um, I honestly don't care. I, I think it's uh, I think it's kind of an irrelevant conversation. I think the whole war on Christmas has been manufactured. And I think uh, me being an atheist, it doesn't bother me one bit if people say Merry Christmas, Happy Holiday, Happy December. Um, I think if it's sincere and it's polite, that's 
that's all that people uh, really care about. Okay, so let me ask you this then. Uh, we do have a tradition in this country of Christmas. I mean, that, that's just, that's reality. I'm not making this yeah, up. I'm no, not, absolutely. that, they, that the is. Christians in this country absolutely have that uh, tradition, and I was raised in that tradition, and uh, we still celebrate a Christmas without Jesus at our house, which is a lot of fun. Okay, and so uh, if someone were to say to you as an atheist, Merry Christmas, do you yeah. take offense to that? None at all. None at all. If it's, if it's sincere, and I have had people actually, you know, almost try and push the issue, and uh, and, I, and I think it's something manufactured by, you know, places like Fox News and, and, and uh, uh, where they, they create this uh, war that isn't there. Um, but uh, no, absolutely not. I, I, I would never take offense to that if it's, if it's said in a way that's, uh, that's sincere. David, I appreciate the call. Thank you. No problem. Uh, and again, okay, so, you know, David's point, if we're not, I don't think anyone who says Merry Christmas to you, or at least not too many are saying, Merry Christmas, now you must go take communion or I'm going to burn down your house. I mean, it's not, we're saying Merry Christmas because everyone's feeling good about Christmas and it's just a nice, pleasant greeting. Whether there is a war on Christmas or not, somehow, if nothing else, we have become skittish about it, or at least some people have, I'll put it that way. And I don't really know why. Anyway, let me go to Brian here. Brian, how are you tonight? I'm good, Scott. How are you? Excellent, thanks. What do you think about this? I think, what happened to all-inclusive? In which way? I, well, in the way that I was born and raised in the culture that we celebrate Christmas. Merry Christmas. I don't take offense to the fact that other people have other beliefs, but I don't think that mine should get thrown out the window because of that. So if someone, if a Jewish person came up to you and said, Happy Hanukkah, would you be okay with that? I'd say absolutely. I'd say Happy Hanukkah and Merry Christmas. And I wouldn't expect them to take offense to me saying that back to them. But again, it's it's like we're obliterating everything that we had as far as our culture in order to facilitate, I don't know whether that's the right word or not, everybody else. I Like I said, I'm, I'm for the all-inclusive. I respect everybody else's, you know, whatever their beliefs are, whatever their culture designates, but I would like that in return. And and it, to me, the, it's gone too far the other way because remember on the, uh, what was it, on the Claremont Access? What was the, Yes, the Merry Christmas there? argument the one time. You're right, absolutely. Brian, yeah, thank you. Now, no, I got to take. I got to run, but I, I appreciate it. And, and it's a great point, the Merry Christmas, because that was a huge argument. Thanks for the call, Brian. Uh, that was a huge argument once upon a time. Do we have Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays, or what do we have? Look, please, if if nothing else from this, and look, you know, I don't know where Bob Bertina came up with the "Have a great month of December." To me, that's just ridiculous. But anyway, don't be preemptively offended for someone who you anticipate is going to be offended by something, because probably they're not. Not if you're delivering this as a sincere, pleasant greeting. Nobody's going to be offended by it. If you say Merry Christmas because we live in a culture where that's the tradition, it's okay. It's okay. And even if you're a politician and not every one of your constituents celebrates Christmas, I still think it's okay. They're not going to march at your headquarters with pitchforks and torches. They're not bad people. They're okay with you saying Merry Christmas. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to bring in our good friend Bubba O'Neill from CHCH, freshly back from Nassau, Bahamas, where he 
was living the life of royalty down there. Is that correct? Am I am I sort of close? I'm going to say you're actually pretty close. Yeah. That, that was as good as it gets. What I just had for uh, almost a week. That was, I mean, it was just super. <laughs> That's all I can <laughs> say. Let alone the weather was spectacular. Um, I've come home, and I guess I've been home for I guess a little about two and a half days. I've yet to see the sun. Where is it? It's in Nassau. It really is. They, they, they've got here. a monopoly on it right now. You know who is not also seeing the sun right now in the worst possible segue that I can possibly make here? Uh, I would argue that somebody also not seeing the sun would be Mark Shapiro or Ross Atkins, the Blue Jays president and general manager. We're into free agent season right now. Oof. They have promised that they are working towards some big signing or signings to bolster the pitching staff and the names that we have started to hear they're interested in. The first big name they were allegedly after Zach Wheeler signed with Philadelphia. No interest with Toronto, I guess, at all. Now we hear um, Hyunjin Ru from the Dodgers. Uh, that's their big target now. I will bet money that he doesn't come to Toronto unless they pay him just an extraordinary amount of money over market value. What happens with these two guys, who you and I both know, Bubba, are generally hated by the fan base, fairly or not? What happens if at the end of this offseason, they haven't been able to land that big fish that they've promised this offseason? Well, I mean, I, I, to their respect, I, I, I don't know if they've promised. I think what they've promised is that they will they will be sniffing tires and they will be chasing Um they uh, they were apparently in the Zach Wheeler sweepstakes. Hanjin um, Ryu is you know a guy that I believe was you know second in the uh, maybe an NL uh, Cy Young voting uh, had an outstanding year. They will you know throw their pitches now. Will their pitches be realistic? Will they be you know is Toronto a viable place for free agents to come to? I think there's a lot of factors that are involved, and I would think uh, Garrett Cole is another one high end pitcher. But I would believe that those pitchers will be going to the highest bidder and probably not a market uh, that's Toronto-based, based on the fact that I don't think that these, as you said, the two men that are running this organization strategically have the cash to spend. And, uh, and that's a problem, especially when you're competing against teams like the New York Yankees. So I believe that they're in on the discussions to acquire these guys. But at the end of the day, they will probably settle on a, you know, a guy like Matt Shoemaker that they brought last year who, you know, was a guy that was sort of had all kinds of promise and was injured and ended up being injured after a couple of good starts with the Jays. Some kind of middling, meddling guy that's, you know, maybe on a one- or two-year deal. I think that's where the Blue Jays will end up having to settle for. And that's, <laughs> as you said, that's kind of be, that's going to probably annoy the fan base. i got to go off track for just a second because I've done this a million times, but there's nothing better than a great mixed metaphor and having hit them around sniffing tires <laughs> on these guys. <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to picture them now. We're not going to kick the tires. We're not going to sniff around. No. We're going to sniff tires on these guys. I tried to tie it in there. <laughs> I, try, I really did because because they because they won't be kicking tires because to me kicking they'll be sniffing around. Like they'll, they will be. They'll be sniffing they around. 
they'll be around, you know, talking to the agents and, and making their pitch and saying, hey, Toronto's a great place to come. We're rebuilding something here. We got lots of young players. There are some selling tools. I know, but there was a time, and you know this, you and I are both old enough and many people listening are old enough. Mm-hmm. There was a time mm-hmm. when the Blue Jays said, hey, we want you to come, that they were the front runners. When they right. went to get Jack Morris, when they went right. to get Dave Stewart, when they traded for David Cohn, when they, guys that they wanted to get, right. they were a destination. And if you, but in this offseason... Why were they a destination there? Every, because they had great teams. Exactly. At that time, every single player that you just named there was at a time where the Blue Jays were, if not winning, you know, they were, if, not, if not winning the AL East, they were in heavy competition yes. for it. But you've now... is not. No, they're not. And, and they have literally... Well, not literally. That's the wrong word. They have no pitching to speak of, no great pitching to speak of. I mean, they can throw some arms out there, but they'll get battered around. And so I'm looking at this thing. They have to find something. But if I'm a starting pitcher and I'm a good starting pitcher, there's two things I want. Big money and a chance to win. I don't want to go to a team that's in the middle of a rebuild that I'm going to just get smacked around for the next couple of years unless you're going to pay me so much that it's insane and I have to do it. Well, and you've said it there. The the Blue Jays are in an overpay situation, and you've got a question if this organization uh, and the men that's leading this organization are interested in an overpay situation. I would say not. Um, and, and I'll be honest, you've got to wonder. I don't know so much about general manager Ross Atkins, but... What's the history, or <clears throat> sorry, the, the what's the future? Not so much the history of the president, Mark Shapiro. Well, that's a great does he, question. Does, does he want to be here? There have already been uh, stories that he's been up for jobs. Or I mean, he's well respected in the sports business community. I mean, I'll give him that. But uh, th- there could be other opportunities for him. Uh, we're hearing, I'm hearing these little mini stories that you know his family aren't really huge fans of this market. And, you because know, everybody here hates him. That's probably why. You walk down the street, you don't have people applauding him. They're hissing at him. Yeah, maybe. That well could be it. That, and that, that's not a welcoming thing. But you, you say, would is this a guy who wants to pay or to, to be in an overpay? And here's the question I have, though. Toronto, you know, we keep getting this impression given to us that Toronto is somehow this small or mid-sized market. Toronto is one of the biggest markets in all of Major League Baseball. It's not New York, but it's way bigger than Boston. It's way bigger. And you've got the whole country. You've got the TV ratings from coast to coast. I know it doesn't measure in U.S. TV, but Toronto is not a small market. Rogers is not a small company. If they want to go and spend the money, the money's there. Wow, and this is what I, I mean, I've read several American uh, baseball and NL, MLB journalists that, uh, you know, and this is where I think Shapiro, you cannot put the blame on him because from what I'm reading from a lot of insiders in Major League Baseball and you see them on the Twitter machine and that kind of thing is that it's not the general manager and the president. It's the ownership of the Blue Jays. And you just prefaced it there. I mean, Rogers is a worldwide communications leader that have their hands in all kinds of businesses. And it is the company, the parent company of the Blue Jays, that are not willing to spend to, you know, it even close to the cap. And I think when you have that kind of situation, you're going to get a team that where the owner, where the general manager and the executives have to be crafty with their money, and that means developing talent, 
making the odd trade, as I said, for sort of middle-like players to give them opportunities at one-year and two-year contracts. And that's kind of what we're stuck with right now. So, so maybe it's maybe it's the parent company, you know, well, that we should be blaming. That you know that you're when you pick up your cell phone and you, <laughs> and you you know or your 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 TV package or your or your internet package and you wonder where your money's going. And and I don't disagree with that. That that could well be the case. That he's been hamstrung. But then you apply, you add that question about who's really not pulling the string, who's really not making this happen with the thing that I think, Bob, and you and I may agree, we may disagree on this, but I think we've reached the point now where Ross Atkins' version of English, which is not English at all, it's not English in any recognizable form of the language that any human has ever heard uttered (laughs) before. This guy talks like C-3PO has a wire loose and somehow just words are popping out that don't fit with words. Here's a quote from his press conference the other day. I defy you or anyone listening to tell me what the heck he is talking about. Here it is. It's such an interesting situation that the Blue Jays are in and have been in for a period of time. When Mark Shapiro and I got here, we didn't choose to have 2019 occur. That's not what our vision was. What our vision was, was trying to do everything we could to extend that window with the parameters we had, the state of our system, the ages of players on our roster. What? Like, I, why? Well, I'll tell you exactly what he's saying there, is that they wanted to build a winner right away, but because of the state of the franchise in which Alex Anthopoulos left it, uh, that this that that they're in the situation that they're in right now, and that he's basically blaming the fact that Alex Anthopoulos, in his final year as a general manager and and VP of baseball operations, um, in some ways left the cupboards bare, and so he's blaming the previous leadership of where you know and saying this is why the Blue Jays are where they're at right now. And you now you said it you took a few more sentences than he did. <laughs> but but even before then you explained it in a way that was understandable to the average person who doesn't have a degree in gibberish. <laughs> Why could he not say, "Look, we came in here and, you know, the farm system was a little barren?" And so it's taken us a little while to put things back together, but we really feel we're on the right track. Well, I mean, I think because probably in his entire time that he's been here, along with Mark Shapiro, and you just said it earlier, they have not been well-liked. They had a hard act to follow in Alex Anthopoulos, who got the team, you know, to basically uh, a couple of wins within a world, to getting to back to the World Series for the first time in, you know, 25, 26 years. And that's a hard act to follow for anyone, quite honestly. But it doesn't help yeah. when you get when people when the fans and believe me the Jays fans we saw what happened when the Jays were doing well With the an J- explosion it doesn't help when the fans feel like the guys building this team are talking around them or right. trying to pull the wool over their eyes or fool them or or try to sound like the smartest guy in the room why these two guys can't talk like humans to other humans is Always amazing to me because it seems like that's one of the things that makes them, in the eyes of the fans, so bloody unlikable that they can't communicate like other people. Now, the, who are we fooling here? Ross, Ross Atkins is, has, has appeared to be nothing more than a puppet here. Yes. Right? So maybe that's where some of the gibberish comes from because, first of all, he's got a fan base to, you know, to explain himself to. But on top of that, too, unlike some other teams in Major League Baseball, 
they the, the television uh, that owns the rights to all of the games is is under the same leadership and ownership that, that you know that's paying his check so he's getting real used to the corporate line and as you said sometimes it's really hard to define what on what where are you ta- what are you talking about what are you saying uh, you can't define in what he's saying uh, and and it's maybe a, a a bit of a protection sort of attitude maybe, that they've taken. Maybe, but okay. Right. Let's let's say you're at a shareholder. Let's say you own stock in a company, and you're at a sure. shareholders meeting, and that's essentially what fans are. They don't really own the team, but emotionally they're invested in the team in, this, mm-hmm. in a certain sense. You're at a shareholders meeting, a stockholders meeting, and the guy gets up on stage and starts talking in the kind of gibberish, nonsensical, dance around the issue, say nothing kind of stuff that Atkins. The shareholders are not going to stand for that. They're going to say, what the poop are you talking about? Speak to us in a way that we under... To me, this this is the kind of thing that makes people a little bit crazy. And I think, look, Alex Anthopoulos didn't always build a great team. Alex nope. Anthopoulos' teams weren't always good, but he would go in the media and talk like a human being and be accessible and be approachable and be explaining. And you know what? He was well-liked. Yeah, I, I think he got a little bit of a free pass because of the Canadian fair, aspect fair. You know, of him. I, I think he got a free pass, and and I think you're very right in saying that you know some of his teams weren't very good. In fact, many of his teams weren't very good. It was really till the the bitter end that his teams were any good. Quite you know in terms of competing for a playoff position, uh, a lot of his you know, tenure was spent rebuilding, trying to pick up the mess from the previous ownership, uh, uh, not ownership, but uh, management that was there before him uh, in J.P. Ricciardi, because uh, Ricciardi rolled the dice on a couple of players, uh, you know, B.J. Ryan, Vernon Wells that come to mind, and he spent big money and cash-strapped strapped the team. So he, other until the very end, he, he was trying to do maybe what these guys were doing. But I agree with you. In that time when he was trying to rebuild the teams, he certainly seemed to um, make more sense or at least speak to us in layman's terms compared to the management that, uh, that is presently running this team right now. Fortunately or unfortunately, this is what we got, though. And, well, but because of this, I, I really do believe that I don't think Rodgers is firing these guys imminently, but if they go through that, they have to get somebody this offseason to bolster it, and I don't think it can be a guy who's another reclamation project or, as you described, a middling, meddling. they got to have somebody that shows that somehow they're making headway. I really believe that. I, and I'm not saying you're going to sign uh, Garrett Atkins, or what's his name? Uh, Garrett uh, is Atkins. Cole. Garrett Cole, pardon me. You're not getting Garrett Cole. You're just not getting him. The guy's going to cost $300 million. You're not doing that. But you got to find somebody who has not been a guy who's just been waddling around in the majors, holding on by his fingernails to a career. It's got to be better than that. With that said, Scott, I mean, with it being a pitcher, remember, a pitcher only go works one day out of five. Um, that, does, this, that alone, and I'm sure you'll hear this from Ross Atkins too, that doesn't guarantee you success, getting one arm. They need to get multiple arms. And that's why I think this offseason is so crucial, because to me it's more than just one guy. I agree. You've, you've, you've lost. Think about this. You've, you, there, no longer is there a Marcus Stroman. And now say what you, or you will about the guy, that you didn't like him, that maybe he beaked off a little bit too much, or maybe he was just a little too um, caustic, I think, towards management at times. 
but the guy went out there and, and, and gave you everything that he's got. Yep. Every time yep. he, t- he went to the mound, that was the case. Now, that was supposed to be the case for Aaron Sanchez. Right now, these two guys who are still under control, you know, under control in terms of their contract and are relatively not getting paid a lot of money, Sanchez was supposed to be that guy as well, too. It should have been a great one-two punch in terms of, you know, young arms that were mature at this point. But it just hasn't happened. It hasn't. We'll see. Uh, And you're right. I'll take back part of what I said. They do need multiple arms. And if it's not a big-name guy, but if a guy shows up, if they pick someone up and he turns into be Jay Happ, who was a... Uh, a guy who was under the radar but was great for the Jays, then okay. But if it's somebody that they get and it turns out to be just another stiff, uh, I don't think it's going to... I don't think it's, Now, i got to let you go, but by the way, just before I let you go, did you hear who the secret player is who is a character who you can play as in NHL 20 by EA Sports? I can't wait to hear this. Snoop Dogg. You can play what? you can play as Snoop Dogg in EA Sports, and he does commentary for his character while you're playing. Well, you know what? I'll say this: good on the National Hockey League. Anytime that league, unlike other leagues, that where it comes quite easily, if you can find yourself world recognized stars to you know affix yourself with, yep. you know you you go all out. And and Snoop, for whatever reason, we will never understand it. But uh, he's a huge sports fan, always has been. He actually coaches football. If people and he did some he did some commentary. You can go on YouTube. We got to run. He went on. You can go on YouTube and you can see he did commentary of an LA Kings game and last year. And I got to tell you, not not funny. I mean, he was pretty good. He was pretty good. And so we'll see. I, I may have to uh, may have to look this one up. And I'm sure on YouTube you can find a oh, it's out there a yeah, clip he, of he his commentary it. of himself. He likes his puck, which is great. He likes other things as well that you can't do during a game. <laughs> now, could you, I, I, I really got to run, but do you think that you could have Snoop Dogg in two different settings? One is like Snoop Dogg and one is Snoop Dogg, who's actually enhanced his performance with some stuff. Where are you going with this? I don't know. You can have Snoop Dogg and you can have high Snoop Dogg. Well, it's legal in Canada. <laughs> it's legal. In, yeah. He can only do it though when the game's played in Canadian rinks. <laughs> Bubba O'Neill, welcome back to Canada. Speaking of Canada, uh, thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, man. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.